Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode brought to you by Of Leadership. I am Alex. I'm John. And I'm Zach. And we are on to episode 96, getting really close to 100. John has big grand ideas for what happens when we get to 100, um, but he will disclose those. Yes, those will be uh, under lock and key. Yes. Perhaps we'll have guests return. I don't know. We'll see what happens. If, yeah, if any of them will come back. <laughs> That's you know, we have uh, mixed reviews from our guests. Um, <laughs> most of them say it was a fabulous time, and mm-hmm. some of them say it was all right. <laughs> Non-response as well. Uh, anyways, on this episode, we're going to be looking at a book called Unwinding Anxiety by Judson Brewer. What a guy. He goes by Judd, apparently. He does. His name is Judd. And so um, we're going to look through that interesting book. I have a feeling that it will help us with future episodes, perhaps come up with different topics from that. So we'll see what happens. Um, But before we get there, uh, last episode, episode 95, was about fables from Friedman. Any um, recap there, gentlemen? What did we talk about? You know, I remember this one. This was the one about Net net games where Henry wanted to improve his wife's tennis game. I think... I think Harry, right? Harry, you know, Harry and Sally. Yeah, Harry and Sally. Henry was his brother. Mm, Uh, Henry was a Mm. southpaw. Harry was the right paw. Uh, So yes. Um, Anyways, yes. Harry and Sally, uh, tennis players. uh, Uh By the end of the episode, I think Sally she actually qualified for Wimbledon, Mm -hmm. if I remember right. Yeah, either that or the French Open. Yes, you'll you'll have to listen to the podcast. And for those of you who are confused, we read from Friedman's Fable in Disgust. So Mm -hmm. you can see all of these notes and more if you listen, as Alex is suggesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, Quick uh, sports reference here. Zach, you used to play tennis. Uh What kind of court was at Wimbledon? What kind of court did they play on Wimbledon? Do they do a clay court? They don't. They do not. No one does a clay you court. Uh, it, blue. It is grass. And is the French open clay? I think yes. French so. Yes. French, yeah. French is yeah. clay. Wilmington's grass. And the other ones, who cares? Blacktop. <laughs> yep. Lions Park. Yeah. yeah. They're asphalt. And um, most <laughs> yes. of the tennis courts are torn down. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Exactly. And there's a couple of needles. Uh, by the way, uh, speaking of tennis courts and needles, um, number 96, any thoughts here? 1996, 96. Yes. So 96 reminds me of 80. So 1980 uh, may have been wonderful man, poor candidate for president, Jimmy Carter, mm. a man who was a much better ex-president than president. Mm. But the Republican side of that... 1996, running for president. Anybody? Challenge Bill Clinton. Uh, uh, Bob Dole. Bob Dole. Bob Dole. Bob Dole. Man of service, Bob sacrifice, Dole. but Bob Dole. a pretty awful candidate in terms of the campaign. But God love him. He did wonderful Bob things. Dole. Yes. Bob Dole. <laughs> this is to you. Bob Dole. <laughs> Just in the background of the whole episode, you'll just be muttering, Bob Dole. Bob Dole. Um, All right. So this book, Unwinding Anxiety, uh, I think we should probably do a little brief summary of what this thing is. Uh, Anybody want to kick us off here? The person who read it last, 
Zach. <laughs> As in you're looking at it right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking. What's the name of his previous book, which I also read? Do you guys recall me talking about that? It's not, I'm not seeing it even in the, the beginning, which I mean. It wasn't winding anxiety? It was not. <laughs> okay. Winding it up and then unwinding it. And then the next book, I think, is rewinding. So anyway, <laughs> this is uh, by Judson Brewer. Judd, as he likes to be known by his friends. Yeah, I keep giggling over there. Uh, he's an MD, he's a PhD, and uh. bro likes to write books. Mm-hmm. He's done some TED Talks. On the back of his book, it says that his TED Talk on habits has been viewed over 16 million times, which is sad compared to the number of views that TikToks are getting these days. Yes. Uh, But he sort of touches on that with habits, with cycles. Mm. Um, And a big thing that he's known for is he's an addiction psychiatrist and neuroscientist who his big catch is that he's also like dabbled in meditation. Mm. So he kind of mixes this idea of mindfulness and self-awareness into um, everything. It's sort of everywhere. His previous book, which I was looking for the title of, but... It has escaped me. It it was really the building blocks of this book, which if you got to the end, he mentions it. And it it was kind of a letdown because it it really leaned into just like, um, think of the self-helpy good vibes of what meditation can do for you. And he really tied in um, just Buddhism as a, a worldview, which was all right, but kind of an unclear shift. And so this book was a welcome, um, Second attempt, uh, at least from my perspective, I found this one much better than before. And his whole big thing is that um, we're talking about um, RBL, whatever that is, reward behavior learning, I believe. Mm-hmm. And his, it, the whole idea and is this is cognitive, cognitive behavioral theory generally as far as I'm aware. And the idea is there's tri- triggers, behaviors, and rewards. And he kind of starts there and he's trying to give you as a consumer of his self-help book this approach, guided approach, I think he would say, to how to... Um, learn to use this as a lens to look at your own life, um, your own addictive behaviors typically, and then how to gain more, we would say awareness, he would say mindfulness, um, lead that into curiosity, and then bada bing, bada boom, the conclusion I think he would say is trusting your own experience which and awareness, which generally leads you to a better place. I think that's a pretty bold assumption. I think there's a lot of caveats to go along with that, but I think that's his book in, his, in a nutshell. The Craving Mind is the original. Oh, thank you. Maybe that was the first mm-hmm. book you're referring to. Which I did really like the first half of that, where it basically just talks about how your mind is wired to look for rewards. And it just really drove home with me this idea that like almost all technology and a lot of our food industry is geared to reward essentially what is an addiction. It's a shortcut to rewards that are largely not beneficial to you. Swiping on phones and popping cookies. Pass me the milk. Mm. Pretty helpful summary. Yeah. I think. I think it's pretty good. So that's a good good place to start. And so just interested in maybe some general thoughts. I'll share one uh, general thought uh, that I have about the book. Uh, His supposition is that anxiety is 
helpful, can be helpful to us, that it's not something to be feared. It, it was interesting how he mentioned about anxiety that some people can be anxious about being anxious. And so when they calm themselves down, they fear that next time I'm going to be anxious and, and almost worrying about worry. And I think you touched on it earlier, Zach, when he mentioned about the idea of being curious, that when one feels anxious to, to stop and reflect on that anxiety and to be curious about it versus, oh my gosh, how can I control this? So um, I think that mindfulness piece is important. And so it was interesting to see how he viewed anxiety as something that informs us of, of what's going on and almost to become like a scientist and observe what's happening in ourselves. Yeah. Similarly related to this book, I listened to, he has a podcast that is woefully disordered. Um, I just searched his name in and I was listening to it on the way here just to sort of get some vibes of some non-TED Talk, non-bookish stuff that he's done. And they're like three to six minutes a piece. They're his daily thoughts on the pandemic. Um, and, you know, his, the whole first episode was basically um, talking about cognitive behavioral theory in the sense of trigger behavior rewards. You know, he did what all self-help people like to do. They tie it to the caveman behavior and then they're like, but you also got a new brain on top of that that includes that brain. And that brain doesn't like the combination of not knowing. And so, you know, here's the equation he put out. And this is specifically released during pandemic times. So we'll see if maybe we can tie it in here. But he says fear plus uncertainty equals anxiety. That's how he specifically phrased that equation. And then, relating it to the pandemic, he said anxiety plus um, social contagion Hmm. equals panic, which I thought was interesting. And then he talked, interestingly enough, about how anxiety is contagious, Hmm. but how social contagion is even more contagious. in so much as I think that's what he would say is social anxiety. Mm. You look at someone in front of you at the grocery store buying way too much toilet paper, and what do you do? Well, you take your anxiety, you couple it with your perception of their um, anxiety, and bada beam, bada boom, you got panic. You got overbuying, you got empty grocery shelves. So I just thought that was an interesting um, further application. This book, I believe... I don't know. I mean, he talks about the pandemic in the book. Yeah, 2021. So this is a a fresh book. This Mm -hmm. was released in 2021. So he's had some time to collect his thoughts from the pandemic and think through that. And the end section does directly call out the pandemic and its interplay in anxiety and cognitive behavioral theory stuff. One of the quotes from the book that I had made note of, you spoke of earlier, is uh, anxiety is born when our prefrontal cortex, that's our thinking brain, doesn't have enough information to accurately predict the future. So when our prefrontal frontal cortex part of our brain doesn't have enough information to process, then it increases our anxiety, our caveman brain, or our more kind of amygdala part of our brain kind of takes over and hijacks our thinking. And we think worst case scenario, what ifs. And then the, the part about emotional social contagion, that's the word you use, right? So, uh, yeah. Social contagion. I thought of emotional process and societal emotional process in yeah. theory. And that, you know, that's the exchanging of emotions between people. And he doesn't use Bowen theory in the book, but that's really what he's getting at, that, that social contagion is when I'm panicked and I get stressed and anxiety, it, it can infect other people. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
so leadership podcasts, be mindful and being mindful of how my anxiety can be picked up by others. What about you, Alex? Any thoughts? Yeah, I, I mean, we're talking about anxiety here. Um, and before we get to what I, I thought was interesting, and, and I want to see what you guys have to think about it. When you talk about the prefrontal cortex, I, I think of it this way. Like, that part of the brain is only so big, it, it can only ho- hold so many different things. And then it gets overloaded and then it freaks out. Uh, and I think this book gives some application of how to use the rest of your brain to help you not get to that point as quickly or not fall into the same habits you've always fallen into. So um, <clears throat> they talked about three, he talked about these three different gears. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, if you've been listening to this podcast, it's really automatic functioning. You, tr- you automatically do these things over and over again. Um, he's, re- re- he's tying it to a reward-based system. Uh, on our end, we don't really talk about that when it comes to Bowen. Um, Right? I mean, I can't think of a time where I've talked about reward-based system on this podcast before. Yeah, I, I think of Kathleen Smith's book, um, Everything Isn't Terrible, which is based in Bowen theory. She talks about like short-term anxiety binders, things that, that we do to make us a little calmer, even though in the long term it's not best for us. Yeah. Um, as far as the eight concepts of Bowen theory, mm-hmm. I'm not sure I can pull one out of there. I, I, but yeah, go ahead. I think it's basically from if you were to force this framework specifically into the eight tenets of Bowen's family systems theory, I think it's a combination of triangles and automatic functioning, right? Yeah. You're getting closer to something, specifically something that's perceived as good as a result of a trigger, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and in a lot of ways, this is like what we're talking about is this reward-based system is... Um, I won't call it rudimentary, but it kind of is. Like the Bowen's fam- Bowen family systems theory goes over that almost automatically and says you get up in the tree, and so that way you you do, you kind of get away from that that rewards based system. Hmm. I mean, even that's what it's. I mean, when he talks about his gears, that's like one of the first things he talks about, like identifying what is your reward based system, and then how did you get stuck there? You know, how do you get out of that? that loop that you're in and well, you start, you start putting yourself in a different mindset to be there. So through mindfulness or, you know, what have you. Um, so, and we've talked about those different applications on this podcast before, just, it's just a different format. So, so what causes someone to, to get out of that feedback loop? Cause he does talk about that, that there's a trigger and when, so I can think of two leaders side by side, both of which fear of not having the right answers. And so one leader, when they get anxious about that, they dig into things, they research, they plan, they're up late at night trying to come up with all the contingency scenarios. So if something does happen, they're prepared. And then I can think of an, uh, another leader who might go to the other direction where they, they deflect and they, if they have a question they don't know, they triangle in somebody else to answer it and, and they almost become... Uh, underfunction essentially. So both anxiety driven behaviors, mm-hmm. but my question is at what point does a leader stop doing that and decide that they want to unwind their anxiety? So if I'm, if I can tie it to the terms of this book, um, and on page 138, if anybody has the book, it might not even be the same page if you're reading through, um, the online Paper version bag. or something. Yes, whatever. Um, <clears throat> regardless, there is a point where he, he does talk about fixed mindset and growth mindset, which 
I have grumbled over the growth mindset when people just throw that term out there, but don't give it any like context. Um, I've heard that several times, at least where we work at, um, just from random people on like, I understand what that means. Cause I've been doing Bowen systems theory for, geez, I don't know, five, six years now. Right. Like I can understand that. But like, if you throw that at somebody brand new, who hasn't looked in it, they'd be like, what, you know, but, um, when it comes to, I think of the over-functioning and the under-functioning, uh, on this page, he talks about going from pleasure and going to displeasure. And, and the, the example you used in here was like chocolate. Like he had, there was a study about people were just eating chocolate. In the beginning, they started eating chocolate. We're like, oh, this is really good. A lot of pleasurable. And they kept making them eat chocolate and it started getting worse. Right. So and they're literally measuring this in an MRI machine, which I just love envisioning someone's, was it milkshakes even? Uh, there's there so many different yeah, studies were, they've done. So regardless, I, I thought it was interesting that it went from pleasure to displeasure and to figure out, I, I don't exactly remember what your question was, John, but somewhere along that line, it does come into this fixed and growth mindset. So the fixed mindset would say, this is how things are always going to be. I can't really change it. And that could be from the homeostasis made from the system itself, perhaps. Um, while a growth mindset would see that and rec whoever's in that mindset could see that as an issue. I'm, I'm doing a lot of work here or I'm not doing a lot of work and maybe I should take a look at this. And I'm wondering if it comes down to the homeostasis of the system. So like for me, let, let's just take this podcast for an example, uh, or let's, John, you take learning Bowen and systems theory. So for you to step into a role where you're now identifying, you're now in a growth mindset, right? And you're identifying where the anxiety is swirling around. Um, and it's easier for you to be curious about those things. Who influenced you to get to that point? Because that, to get, to be able to walk those steps, like, I don't know if, John Moyer, maybe you did. And I know I can speak for myself, but I am wondering about you. Like, did you just wake up one day and you're like, you know what? I think I'm going to start looking at anxiety and be curious about this. I'm thinking how to respond to this question. I was really looking for a way to help students grow as people beyond dispensing mm. advice. Mm. And in talking to... Uncle Jim Moyer, who wrote the first Resilient Leadership book about this, he said to me, this is what I help leaders do. I help leaders solve their own problems using this theory. And I thought, well, I want to help students solve their own problems. So I'm interested in learning about the theory. So it was more the utility of the theory to help a group of people who mm -hmm. is part of my why versus my own internal... Now, Having said that, I think paying attention to my own anxiety and, and learning the theory, but also applying it to my own life, I think has been really helpful mm. and almost instrumental to really understand the theory. You have to, I think, practice it, I think. Yeah. I'm just wondering if that, the, maybe even your internal systemic um, homeostasis, let's say, was disrupted by perhaps somebody else, especially from your family, who had a different mindset that you had and showed you that, right? Now you are, even just as a regular human being, and John, I know you, but like you're just growing, literally physically growing as a person, right? Um, throughout your life and age and blah, blah, blah. 
Um, I don't know. I'm just wondering, this is a leadership podcast and leadership is about influence. There is, I feel like there's a bit and piece of this of going from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset because somebody influenced me to show me that. Well, I, I can remember where I was when uh, he was a guest on our podcast, Greg Warder, who um, talked about uh, work systems and, and how to be better at work. And it's a really interesting podcast, but I've known Greg for many years. And, and I remember when I was telling him this, he said, you need to do this. You need to explore this. And Greg, soft-spoken, um, not one that you know, gives commands, if you will. But I remember him looking at me and telling me those words and knowing him for as long as I did, it really caused me to think long and hard. So that may have flipped that switch and disrupted that homeostasis, if you will, and urged me to, to take action on it. Yeah. Now, John, I don't even remember what your original question was. Well, so let's kind of explain where we where we are so far. What you're saying is that Leaders get anxious, people get anxious, mm-hmm. and we tend to, to do behaviors to to calm our anxiety in the short run, but they don't always service best in the long run. Mm-hmm. And my question was, at what point does a leader say, I got to do something different? And I gave the example of the over-functioning versus the under-functioning leader. And I think part of it from what I've seen is the over-functioning leader starts to develop ulcers. They start to lose their family. They start to have, you know, it, it starts to cost them internally or relationship-wise. Mm-hmm. I think for the under-functioning leader, I think this is true, for the under-functioning leader, the ulcers and the stress is actually cast upon other people who are having to step in the gap and fill in the gap for the leader. And uh, they're the ones that bear more of the emotional cost. So I'm I'm just thinking the overfunctioning leader internalizes the stress. The underfunctioning leader projects the stress onto others. Yeah. I think there's physical ailments is what you're speaking yeah, of. Yeah, there can be, yeah, mm-hmm. physical ailments. Okay. Yeah, I, another part of this that I find interesting is, if, if I can go back, rewind as, as it were, uh, to what you were talking about when it comes to anxiety and overfunctioning and underfunctioning, especially the overfunctioning uh, on... Within the book, he talks about this quote, like uh, I was taken back by what was mentioned here was that, um, let me see. Another comment, uh, I feel the same way. I was fearful that if I let go of my anxiety, I will lose the capacity to push myself as hard as I did. Or if you're stressed, you're making, uh, you are making a contribution. If you're not stressed, you're a loser. Hmm. There is, a, I feel like there is some sort of mindset within, and I know that I've tricked myself before on this, is if I'm not stressed out and I don't have that anxiety to push me forward, like, I, I can't do this. You know what I mean? I need that. I need that stress to get me going. And I thought it was really interesting because that sounds classic like... Classic over-functioner the Classic response. over-functioner response, right? So... Um, but eventually, like you said, that's going to burn you out. Um, I don't know. I don't. Have you guys heard that much before with people? Yeah, I have. That's you know, stress drives me, and um, and I think you know, stress is partly that. It, it gives you incentive to study for a test or prepare for an interview or a presentation. Um, but it's when it becomes chronic and it's mm-hmm. just always there, always well, something. And he even talks about the anxiety loop. 
right? This idea, you know, if we talk about automatic functions and we tie that, imagine Mm. that tied with rewards, you know, the trigger is you start to get anxious. The behavior is whatever the uh, tension of your anxiety is, you spend more time fixated on that and resolving it. And the reward is you've accomplished something. Mm -hmm. And so in the next time you're in that situation, you know, he also compared this to, you always remember your first more, right? Mm -hmm. That reward, right? It doesn't matter what it is. If when you had a long day and you sit down to enjoy some popcorn and TV, right? The next time you do it, if you're not present and aware, you're just shoveling down popcorn and you're you're just watching TV. It's mindlessness, not a mindful relaxation. Yeah. And so in that same way, next time you're in anxiety, your body remembers that first accomplishment and reward. And if you're not careful, you ca- get caught in this um, pit of anxiety-driven um, behavior that produces a result, but it consumes you because of the amount of anxiety. Mm. Right? It's driven by and resultant in anxiety, which is not preferable. Yeah, that's, I mean, this is what John talks about. It's like, what is it costing you? I think the other side of this, you could, another question you maybe ask yourself, uh, what is this costing you? What is the reward? Yeah. What's the other end of this? What reward are you really getting out of this? Um, perhaps getting whatever I need to get done. Okay. And then tie that to them. What's the cost of that? I think there is a, there's two sides of that coin. Um, and, and what's interesting is that and within here, he talks about addiction and, um, I don't know. We this is for another discussion at a later time. But like, how does addiction play into leadership, and what does that look like? Maybe do you get addicted to certain styles of leadership or different ways of overfunctioning? I mean, I think you could. That's something that if you get in that loop, you could definitely do that. So, um, but you know, what does it? What is it costing you? And then on the other end, what is the reward for that? So. Um, I'm just trying to tie it back to the book because uh, he did talk about that. Yeah. I, there's, a, there's so much application in this book for leaders, I think. And I, I think leaders oftentimes are rewarded for being competent, for thinking ahead, for planning, for being the smartest person in the room, or at least working harder than anybody else. And what that can turn into is they're able to become accomplished as people. They get promoted. They get put on project manager and it's this, it, it feeds this loop. And what can happen in an organization is then that leader is the one that knows everything and others really can't make any decisions mm. because the smartest person in the room just kind of calls the shots and they need to continue in that power because it helps them to feel competent and calm themselves down, but they're stuck in this loop of always hyper-achieving. Because that's the expectation that's set. That's the expectation that's been set. And they, they set the homeostasis for people to rely on. Yeah, they do. And, and, and when you step back from that and say, okay, how's this working out for everybody? If you could actually unwind that anxiety and, and sit with it for a while you'd realize this is not a healthy dynamic for anybody involved in this relationship. But, and both parties get stuck and they don't know how to undo it. Mm-hmm. They don't know how to undo it. Hmm. So what does uh, Judd talk about? How do we, like, if somebody said, I'm anxious uh, in, in, our, in our listening audience, like, how do I unwind anxiety, which is the name of the book? What are, what are some action steps that Judd gives us to, what do we start with that? 
So I just want to precurse that my answer to that with I see some similarities in the broadness of his approach and Bowen's family systems theory. But I think the primary difference between the two is his is rooted in a specific application of trigger behavior and reward and tying that into meditation and mindfulness, which I do think is helpful and I do think it works. But I think it's so vague that sometimes you need someone who's experienced in Mm. it to guide you through it. In a lot of his examples, as he was reading through it, I felt similar as perhaps when I've talked with you, John, and your more experienced lens of Bones Family Systems Theory, I say, oh, I didn't see it that way, but I see how I could have. But in comparison, I see Judson Brewer saying some things where it's like, here's the anxiety, here's the, uh, here, here's the trigger behavior reward, and this reward is actually more anxiety. And I was like, and I look at that and I'm like, I could think this way, but I don't think I could apply it with the level of specificity needed to actually accomplish results in my own life, at least not as immediately, not as self-helpfully, not as as self-helpy as, you know, a self-help book proclaims that you can do it. Mm -hmm. Um, And we'll get to that in the caveats. But all that to say is he ties it to mapping the habit loop, first gear, Second gear, updating the reward. And third gear, a better offer, right? Mm -hmm. Which is replacing the behavior to have even new rewards. Mm -hmm. And he roots this all in a mindful awareness, typically of bodily feelings Mm -hmm. and emotional states. Mm -hmm. And he leans less on the emotional state. Typically the emotional state is a trigger or mm. a reward. Sometimes it's a behavior, but more often he's leading you into, at least this is how I perceived it, trusting your own experience. And that's rooted in the actual feelings specifically tied to bodily senses and emotions, tightness or looseness um, that you experience during these trigger behavior reward cycle. Mm-hmm. He, he's almost inviting you to solve your own problem by being, when we think mindfulness, some of our listeners might be thinking of meditation. I don't really understand that, but I think he's saying, pay attention, mm-hmm. pay attention to your senses, pay attention to mm-hmm. the cost, pay attention to the benefits, be your own scientist, if you will, observe yourself and um, unwind that anxiety by choosing a different behavior. And when you mentioned, so go through those again, the, the trigger behavior reward, is that what it is? Yep. Okay. So the trigger is some type of stimulus. The behavior is distance of some kind, conflict of some kind, projection, which is addiction. He focuses on that. Yeah. And over and under functioning. So it, go, and yep. it, it's the mechanism yes. of those things. Right. We see those things as what we observe, but what he is saying is there is a mechanism that as we look at it through our bones family system lens, we see it produces those things. It produces closeness or distance or the behavior is itself a manifestation of over or under functioning. And so they're complementary in a sense, Mm -hmm. but and part of my precursor comment earlier was, you know, I see how I use the observations of Bones Family Systems Theory. I don't always see where I would put behavior in my own triggers 
mechanisms and rewards. I mean, and I have some examples. Uh, I, I anecdotally put down a case study that we could try and run through of some of my own experiences as I was trying to th- think this through, but I really struggled with it just because it's hard to know what the reward is in these situations. That's, that's what I most struggle with, the term reward. How about some critiques of the book? Uh, caveats. Uh, just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I mean, if you're, I, I think, somewhat versed through Bowen's Systems Theory, or you've been um, checking out that level of leadership, I mean, you're listening to this podcast, I think using that lens and reading this book is a good place. I, I don't know. I'm trying to think of me, you know, younger me, trying to read this book, it might have been pretty difficult for me to read through. I might have been interested in the in the mental part of it and the brain, but because I like science, but then like coming up with habit loops and trying to do all that extra work at home, like uh, I probably would have given up in some ways, you know, because there's a lot of like physical work involved by writing things down. Um, but I, I, other than that, I think those. That's what I think when I when I look at that. It does get a little long-winded on some issues of um, restating things and all the different case studies and all the different things. Um, yeah, they're good, I, but it is a little. As like, I was listening, I was like, "Did my audiobook skip back for some of these parts that I listened to, or is he just restating them like they were just such direct continuations of something he had already said, but I thought he had moved on from?" Yeah. So yeah, having said that, if if I'm new to looking at anxiety through this lens at all, and I have no knowledge of Bowen theory, maybe that restating um, is is helpful to kind of reiterate what we think is somewhat repetitive. Maybe. And I think it's most helpful. I think part of the reason, I mean, the ones that stick to me is like the restating of the chocolate study over yeah. and over. And I'm like, that didn't really particularly help me grasp anything more firmly, I don't think. But I think it did have value if I were to use this book as a guide and say, okay, I'm coming back to this chapter and I'm going to re quote unquote yeah. meditate on this mm-hmm. chapter as a- application. Now, I would say, like, if you've had some sort of addiction, I think this book would be. Yeah, that's even, what I was thinking. Even if, better for you. If you know what your habit behavior is yeah. that you are trying to work through, mm-hmm. then I totally get this book. In my yeah. own experience and talks with people who struggle with um, pornography and not wanting to do that, right? I can see that. With people who eat emotionally, I can very much see that. Yeah. With people who smoke, um, with people who ruminate, I can mm-hmm. see a lot of those, but I don't know how I get to this book mm-hmm. from that unless someone is able to recommend it to me and say, hey, this says unwinding anxiety, but it, what it's really unwinding is the anxiety rooted in these particular behaviors. Yeah. Um, last few minutes, uh, any quotes or applications? I have a quote, uh, so I'll answer my own question Um This is from five hours and 38 minutes left in the book. It says, uh, (laughs) Kindle here, to hack our brains and break the anxiety cycle, we must first become aware, it's page 24, I think, um, to hack our brains and uh, and break the anxiety cycle, we must become aware of two things. First, that we are getting anxious and or panicking and... What results from anxiety and panicking? So two things. 
being aware that I am getting anxious and being in touch with, you know, what anxiety looks like, whether it's a tightness of the shoulders or a clenched jaw, um, however it physiologically shows up in you. So that's the first thing. And then second of all, uh, what results from the anxiety behavior? Like, how do I actually behave when I'm anxious? Uh, and then I think what's building from there as the book goes on is, okay, um, how I respond to anxiety, how well is that serving me? How is that helping me be the person I want to be? And what would it be, look like to be more mindful and uh, a different choice? So that's a, that's a quote uh, I had. So guys, quotes or, or applications for, for leaders um, to, to pay attention to how they could use this book in their own life or those they lead. So I, I got one or two things that I want to hit on real quick. As far as quotes and applications, I think that this is really good with um, respect to addictive behaviors and unwanted habits is this idea of the why habit loop. I don't know if you guys recall that section, mm-hmm. but um, I'll just read out the example TBR he has mentioned, trigger, anxiety, behavior, trying to figure out why he or she is more anxious yeah. and failing. And then the result is they get more anxious. Sure. And, it, you know, even right there, this, it goes back to my, my critique of why is, why is anxiety a reward there? Obviously, it fits because it's so vague um, as a framework, but, you know, he would explain how the anxiety is rewarding and I would be like, okay, I get it, but I don't. Um, but all that to say, though, is asking the why question can be good but it doesn't necessarily solve anything. We live in such an intellectual society that we want to know why and the underlying mechanisms Mm. where one of the helpful frameworks I've pulled away from Bones Family Systems Theory is the what. What can I see? What can I observe? How can I gain more information from that? And how can that change things? Just Mm -hmm. having that information. It doesn't promise anything. Mm -hmm. It doesn't show you it it shows you stuff and that may or may not be helpful but hopefully that distance and that um, that you know it's a form of mindfulness creates a curiosity that hopefully will lead you to knowing what the next steps are for yourself yeah that's helpful yeah and then go ahead ahead. no so so one thing i wanted to toss out just in general is uh, you know i love thinking about individuality as a cultural trend, right? We've talked about the, why the nuclear family failed or whatever that article mm-hmm. by Brooks is that mm-hmm. I love mm-hmm. our episode two episodes ago. And I just feel like one of the caveats of this book is the presupposition that you are in a safe enough space or are disconnected enough that you can control your own circumstances such that you can trust and feel and do this mindfulness curiosity thing in a safe space mm. that I wow. feel comes across a little privileged. And he talks a little bit about privilege and about race and COVID because, mm. you know, this is 2021 and this book came out in 2021. And yeah. so you have to write about it. But at the same time, I can think of people, I have three or four people and a pair of them are married <laughs> that I can think of that, don't have those safe relationships and never have, and everything has ended up a, uh, uh, don't take me, this isn't a direct quote, but a dumpster fire. And they've never had the chance to 
do these things, to root themselves, to feel things truly, because the mm -hmm. second they start to recover, something else has happened. Yeah. Interesting. I never, that's an interesting caveat. Yeah. And I, and I think that that rolls back to influence, right? So, um, I think of your influence, if you are versed in, in ways to help people, not to use the book term, but unwinding anxiety, more or less be trans uh, down, why can't I think, step down transformers, mm -hmm. right? Your calming presence can really lead people into a space to where they can feel more safe. It just takes time. But yeah. I, I'm really glad you brought that up because there are certain instances where there is not any options mm. to be able to, to have that safe space. Mm -hmm. And often, and I mean, we are products of our society and our circumstances, of the relationships we hold, of the things we take in, and mm -hmm. circumstances that change. And, you know, you can think of the, the rich fool mm. who just... He lives a good life because he doesn't have any stressors, but he is a fool. And you mm. can think of the most capable person you know, but as a product of their circumstances, have never been able to get out of the the hole that they were born into. And so, you know, you think of those tensions and I even think about his specific examples of when he was using this methodology to apply it to writing a book. And mm -hmm. he talked a lot about flow and this is yeah. the part of the book where he really gets into meditation. But did you notice that, and this is one of the things that triggered this American individuality thought for me, mm. his wife left to go to California on a trip to visit family so he could be alone with mm. the dog or maybe she took the dog, but so that he could be alone to do this. Mm -hmm. He could not have done that if his wife was around, or at least I don't think he could yeah. have. And his whole point is he's, you know, making as clinical of a trial as he can because he's yeah. trying to live out these circles. But it doesn't, that's not a realistic system. We, you know, space is a privilege. The ability to buy privacy is, you know, what Brooks talks about in his article. It's, it's what you do with wealth. Mm -hmm. But you need the wealth to do it. Yeah, I think I'll wrap us up. Thank you for bringing that up at the bottom at the uh, the bottom of our podcast. Yes, at the bottom of the ninth. Yep. Um, so check us out on um, ofleadership.com. Email us at ofleadership at gmail.com. Jetler, thanks for the music. Boop boop boop. Yep. Other than that, I think we are good, gentlemen. I'm Alex. I'm John. And I'm Zach. We'll catch you on the next podcast. See you around. Awesome.